the only thing you're going to be able to write on my tombstone about me is that I got a million people drunk. Just woke up one day and said, now it's my turn to have fun, to play, to break the rules. It is shocking when you see a child drink from a brown swamp. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. Today's guest, what a human being. Let me tell you his story. After a decade of indulging in his darkest vices as a nightclub promoter, he declared spiritual, moral, and emotional bankruptcy. He spent two years in a hospital ship off the coast of Liberia, saw the effects of dirty water firsthand, and came back to New York City on a mission. He's the founder and CEO of Charity Water, a nonprofit organization dedicated to bringing clean, safe drinking water to people in developing nations. Through Charity Water, Scott has created public installations and innovative online fundraising platforms to spread international awareness on this issue. With the help of more than one million donors, that's just nuts. Okay, Charity Water has raised more than 750 million, that's three quarters of a billion dollars, and funded nearly 121,000 water projects in 29 countries. When completed, those projects provide over 16.8 million people with clean, safe drinking water. He was recently recognized in Fortune magazine's 40 Under 40 list, the Forbes magazine Impact 30 list, and was recently number 10 on the Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business. If you'd like to contribute to make the world a better place, then the next guest, Mr. Scott Harrison, will blow you away. He genuinely has changed the world and it's an honor to have him on the show. Cue the music. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate, and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Well, Scott, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show today. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. I know we're going to talk about Charity Water, but you know, you, you almost are like Mr. Charity to me. Not Mr. Charity Water, Mr. Charity, because of the epic work that you've done with, with the area that you've focused on. So I think we first of all need to start with your story because people here in the Middle East may not have heard it. And whilst I've heard it, and just today I was sobbing my heart out watching a video about you. I think that people need to understand where you came from, what you did, and how on earth you got to where you've got, because it's truly inspiring. Yeah, well, thanks uh, for the opportunity. Yeah, it's, it's great to be here. Um, I, I guess if I start at the beginning, I had a pretty weird childhood. When I was four, my mother um, became an invalid. She became disabled through a freak carbon monoxide gas leak in our home. Uh, one day, she passed out on the floor unconscious uh, with a massive exposure to carbon monoxide. This led to the discovery of the leak, and she was just never the same again. So I grew up as an only child, taking care of her, doing the cooking, doing the cleaning. You know, when I got older, taking her to doctor's appointments, and she just lived in isolation from the world. Anything chemical made her sick. So if it was soap or perfume or car fumes... Uh, she just had to live with basically in a bubble. So that was kind of phase one of my life. And, you know, if you'd asked me what I wanted to be as a kid, uh, I would have told you I'm going to be a doctor when I grow up. I'm going to cure my mom and other sick people. 
Well, I did not become a doctor. At 18, instead, I became a nightclub promoter. So pretty much the opposite. And, you know, I think just just woke up one day and said, now it's my turn to, to have fun, to play, to break the rules. And, you know, it was a very conservative house. And I moved to New York City and I said, I'm going to chase women. I'm going to drink. I'm going to smoke. I am going to uh, drive fast cars. Uh, I'm going to have the watches, you know, all of these markers of success. And I'm going to make it in the Big Apple. And, you know, this is a kind of crazy job where you can make a lot of money effectively partying for a living. You know, you are the art auteur. Uh, of the the party and over the next 10 years to the horror of my parents I worked at 40 different high-end nightclubs in New York City and you know we would have the models and the celebrities and the the rap stars and you know Bentleys lined up outside Uh, I'd be standing on the inside looking through one-way glass deciding who got inside the club so it was it was this kind of uh it was a life that maybe looked great and glamorous on the outside but was really soulless and hedonistic and selfish uh, when you peeled back that that first layer. So uh, I, I did 10 years in the business. And then, you know, at 28, I uh, kind of woke up one day. I had some health issues, <laughs> maybe, maybe no surprise uh, because of the way that I was living. And just realized, man, if I continue down this path, the only thing you're going to be able to write on my tombstone about me is that I got a million people drunk, maybe 5 million people, maybe 10 million people wasted. And, and what kind of legacy is that? And I realized how far I had come from this you know, really wonderful foundation of spirituality and morality that my parents had brought me up with. And, and I wanted to get back home. You know, so there's this kind of cliche story of the prodigal son who you know, travels around the world and squanders an inheritance and, and finds himself in a pig pen. You know, just I was kind of in that proverbial pig pen and I wanted to go home. Um, I'm a pretty radical guy. So I said, I'm going to sell everything I own. I'm going to start life over at 28 years old and I'm going to see if I can be useful. And my idea was to go and volunteer on a humanitarian mission in the poorest country in the world. And after a lot of uh, rejection and a lot of denials from big humanitarian nonprofit organizations because it turns out they're not looking for nightclub promoters, that this is not the, the profile of a volunteer uh, that they're typically looking for. I found this one opportunity to go live in post-war Liberia, West Africa as a photojournalist on a medical mission. And it was these unbelievable humanitarian doctors and surgeons. They were giving up their vacation time They were coming from 41 different countries around the world to offer free medical service to people who couldn't afford it uh, in countries where there just wasn't access to hospitals and high quality care. And Liberia had just come out of a brutal 14 year civil war. So this was actually the poorest country in the world Uh, because there was data. It was placed at the very last place of the United Nations development chart. There was no electricity. There was no running water. There was no sewage that was working. There was one doctor for every 50,000 citizens. So if you got sick, you were just out of luck in this country. And I was so excited because we were bringing doctors. We were bringing physicians into this country 
um, backed by 14,000 United Nations peacekeepers, which was the largest force ever deployed in the history of the world at that time. So I go into Liberia and I'm, I'm taking pictures for free on this medical mission. And I'll never forget my third day in the country, 5,000 sick people turn up to stand in a parking lot outside of the football, the soccer stadium in the center of the country to be triaged by our doctors. And the problem was we only had 1,500 available surgery slots. So that day we sent 3,500 sick people home with no hope, with no chance to see a doctor. And we later learned that many of these people had walked for more than a month just in the hope of getting their child seen. Some of them had walked from Sierra Leone or Guinea or Cote d'Ivoire, uh, neighboring countries desperate for medical care, and we didn't have enough resources. And that really started me on what's now been a 20-plus year journey uh, in response to what I saw. I needed to do something about that great need. When you first experienced being in Liberia... It's obviously, I, I grew up in West Africa, so I was in Nigeria for a few years myself. And people say to me, can you please describe what Nigeria is like to me? And I used to say, you can't describe Nigeria. There's, there's no way that I can use words that would do enough justice to what you smell, taste, feel, experience while you're there. So when you think about what it was like when you were first, first there, was it a massive shock to the system? It was, but it was alive and humming with activities and um, uh, uh, almost a, a possibility this oppressive war had ended. The war leader had been, he'd fled the country. In fact, they caught him trying to sneak across the border in the boot of a, of a car. And I, I think this was, it was a really exciting time. It was a tenuous piece. I think there was both uh, excited anticipation of a country that could rebuild and also maybe a nervousness that it could slip back into conflict. Um, but I'd never experienced anything like it. I mean, there were tanks and razor wire and helicopters uh, flying. There were the Bangladeshi troops and the Swedish troops and the Norwegian troops. And the, yeah, it was, it was a Now, experiencing the suffering of these people, what kind of an impact did that have on you emotionally? You know, I'll, I'll never forget them. So my job, <laughs> I forgot to mention one thing. To volunteer for Mercy Ships meant I also needed to pay them $500 a month. So th this was pretty much the opposite of my life, you know, spraying $1,000 bottles of Cristal champagne, you know, from a DJ booth down on the crowd, right? Uh, I'm, I'm paying $500 a month to volunteer in this country. And my actual job, my volunteer job, was to document all 1,500 people for the medical library and then to tell the stories of these people as they became transformed by these doctors and surgeons. So I'll never forget the first kid I met. Um, and his, his mom was really smart to bring him uh, to the front of the line. She brought him there to that football stadium days early so that he, he would get seen. And he was a 14-year-old boy suffocating to death with a volleyball-sized pink tumor that occupied his whole face. And I, I remember his mom took out this small photo and through a translator, she said to me, four years ago, I had a healthy 10-year-old boy. And she shows me this handsome kid. And then this tumor started growing. And there was no doctor to take him to. There was no surgeon. So she took him to the witch doctor. And that didn't work. Those spells 
the, the chicken blood spread on the tumor just didn't work. And it grew and it grew. And here was a little boy suffocating to death on his own face because he didn't have access to medical care. And he was terrified. And I just remember weeping. I went in the corner of that stadium and I, and I just, I broke down. And, you know, thankfully one of the doctors came over to me and kind of kicked me in the butt and said, dude, you're going to see so much worse than that. And you're going to have to do that 1500 times. So why don't you man up and uh, focus on the hope? We're here because we're able to help kids like Alfred. And you're going to watch him go home with a completely new face and a completely new life. And that turned out to, to be true. And that led me, uh, really, that, that idea of focusing on the hope was really catalytic for the next year that I would spend with Mercy Ships. Uh, when that year ended, I just didn't know what was next, so I just went back for another year. And that's when I discovered the water issue. That's when I discovered that the source of so much of the sickness we were seeing was simply because people didn't have clean water. And I learned these two things. I learned that half the country was drinking contaminated water from open swamps, uh, brown, viscous rivers. So kind of imagine uh, chocolate milk. Ugh. And I learned that half the disease in the country was because people were drinking contaminated water and didn't have access to sanitation and hygiene. So I remember being in the villages, looking at these sources of water, saying, I wouldn't give that to a dog. I wouldn't let a uh, livestock drink water. And I'm watching these children drink and sometimes even get sick in real time. You know, you watch a child drink and then vomit and then drink more and then vomit. And I remember taking these pictures that I was taking to the doctors and uh, the, the chief medical officer said, yeah, we know. We know. This is one of the reasons why 5,000 sick people are standing in a parking lot you know, waiting to be turned away. Why don't you go work on this? Why don't you try to bring clean water to every single person on the planet? Make that your life's mission before you die. And I don't know, there was something so simple about that. When you tell a 30-year-old kid who's just been through two years of proximity to these great needs, I said, all right, that sounds good. I'll try to do that. So I went back to New York City. And I started telling everybody, I'm going to try to bring clean water to every human being on the planet before I die. And at the time, there were a billion people living without water. It was one in six people alive. As we record this today, 20 years later, it's one in 10 people alive. It's 771 million people. So still, you know, an extraordinary uh, problem of, you know, epic proportions but we've actually made some. When progress. you think about that progress that you've made, that you, that, that's, that's something that's got to make you very proud of what you did. But before we go into that, tell me, tell me, yes, simple. Yeah, go solve the water problem, pal. You know, go, go, go and have a go at that. Have a crack at that one. And then from there, you lean on your experience in, in, in your previous career. And it's like, how do I start? Let's do a party. Let's try and raise some awareness. So I thought that was fascinating. So tell me more about that. Yeah, well, you know, okay, so that's, that's a very simple mission. So I think it started there. But what are you going to do? I'm going to bring clean water to people in need around the world. Um, we know where these people are, and there's lots of data that kind of you know, can very clearly articulate the problem. People shouldn't be drinking dirty water. Human beings need clean water for life, uh, to thrive, to flourish. Um, I had the advantage of being 30 and not knowing anything about charity or 
philanthropy. So I was talking with people who went to clubs and they worked at Sephora and they worked at the local bank. Uh, they worked at MTV or VH1. And as I started talking to people, I realized there was this huge skepticism and cynicism when it came to donating to charity. I learned 42% of Americans said they don't trust charities. I learned 70% of people who were polled believe charities wasted their money. Seven out of 10 people believe charities are not good stewards of the financial donations that they're getting. So I thought, wow, that's sad. We need more people leaning in. We need more people giving generously out of what they've been blessed with to help others, to help meet these critical needs around the world. So I, I wondered whether a different business model could speak to the cynic, could speak to the objector. And my big idea was, uh, what if I could promise the public that 100% of all donations we ever took anywhere around the world would go directly to help people get clean water? They would go directly to construct water projects. Now, to do that, um, I would need to somehow, in a separate bank account, raise all of that nasty overhead from, from a different group of people. The staff salaries, the flights, the insurance, the office rent, the toner for the Epson copy machine that is wildly overpriced, right? Um, and, 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 I, and I said, I'm going to try and do this. So I opened up two bank accounts. I said, we're going to audit them separately. And in one bank account, I'm going to go convince a small group of visionary philanthropists, of business leaders, of entrepreneurs to pay the overhead. And then millions of people around the world can have the purest way of donating. Uh, and I said, we're going to take this so far, we'll even pay back credit card fees. So if somebody gave $100 or 100 euro on their American Express card, we only get 96. But we would pay back the 4% that Amex took, and then we would send that 100 to the field. And then the second kind of pillar became, okay, well, if money's not fungible, could we build technology to track these dollars, pounds, euros, kroner, all around the world, and could we show people what their money accomplished, exactly which village it went to? So we became the first charity in the world to publish every single completed project on Google Earth and Google Maps. So we said, if we have 100,000 completed water projects, people are going to be able to go on our website and see 100,000 satellite images of each of these projects. And the really, the, the idea there the animating idea was to try to create the most transparent charity in the history of the world. Again, to speak to some of those objectors. And then the third pillar, so giving away 100% of donations, using technology to prove where the money went. And then the third was just this belief that for our work, providing clean water to people across 29 countries, where we now are, uh, for that work to be culturally appropriate and sustainable, it had to be led by the locals in each of these countries, not led by expats, not people flying in from Europe or the Emirates or, or America uh, to drill wells, but we would create thousands of local jobs as we were successful. We would get people the training and the equipment they needed uh, to practice hydrogeology, to, to drill wells and build biosand filters and, and, and solar systems. Um, and, and if we could put all this together, maybe we really could create a movement that captured the imagination of everyday people and then effectively took these resources 
and extracted as much clean water for humans as we could at the village and at the family level. And that's been uh, what we've really been trying to do on repeat now for, for 17 years. That's to, to have the foresight to think that through. Was there a team of you that came up with that? Or was it you just sitting there going, I've got to, I've got to do this differently? No. Uh, we're just sitting around just throwing stuff on a whiteboard saying, oh, what if you, you know, how, how would all this work? No, it was, it was really intuitive. I think just trying to solve problems, it, it was the listening tour. I mean, I think many entrepreneurs, they see a problem, they see a need in the marketplace, and then they try to go and meet that need. And they build a company or an organization to, to meet that need. You know, we were talking earlier, you're, you're passionate about trafficking. I mean, no child should be trafficked. No child should be tied to a bed shackled to a bed, you know, while some tourist comes in and takes advantage of them. Um, so there's, there, you know, right, that's an, that's an inarguable thing we can all agree on, right? People need water. Children need to be safe. And, you know, I think by going out and listening, you know, what kind of organization would people want to be the vehicle to deliver on that promise, to deliver on that hope, to deliver on that good? Um, those listenings turned into uh, just a very unique. Now, when you look at the, the the results that you've got, you've raised huge amounts of money and had massive impacts all over the world. But were, were there were there moments along the way on the journey where where things just ramped up without reason or understanding or a way that you could really get your head around and 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 changed and and almost catapulted the the revenue creation along that way? Were there were I wish I could say that was true. I wish I could say that was true, but it has been excruciatingly hard work for 17 years. Last year, we raised over $100 million. The year before, another $100 million. So, you know, it's now an organization that is really um, reaching some scale as millions of people around the world are, are donating uh, both $5 and $10 and then $5 and $10 million. Um, it, it has not been easy. There was no tipping point. You know, I, I really wish, uh, and, and maybe that's still yet to come. I remember looking at the uh, 27 year stock chart of Amazon. And interestingly, in the first 20 years, in the first two decades of the company Amazon, 7% of the, the market cap was created. 7% of the company's value in 20 years, 93% in the following seven in years 21 through 27. So things really do take time. And I think that encourages us by just continuing to show up and continuing to work passionately and with high integrity uh, and, and as efficiently as we know how to. Uh, maybe there is that, that moment. You know, I, I, I say all the time, it's really interesting. Water doesn't have a philanthropist. There is no philanthropist in the world that has made water their singular goal. Uh, and put any number of resources uh, of of note behind it. You know, climate has a lot of uh, res you know passionate ambassadors. Women, uh, right, empowering women and girls. Lots of passionate ambassadors. Education, my gosh, cancer, cancer research, right? Water for 771 million humans who need it. Uh, there's not someone who's throwing. So tell me, I'm going to get this done. You know, we're we're the closest with our with our our you know really. Yeah, you ask like, I mean, you said, wow, to $750 million. I mean, that feels like a fraction of what I believed we would have accomplished. That's not real. In, in, in a world awash in capital, you know, uh, here in America, we, we just printed four or $5 trillion of money. 
during the pandemic, right? So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that raising $100 million a year is, is anything, really. I mean, it's a fraction of what's needed to actually make uh, this problem go away. So I hope that, you know, this is uh, just a very early stepping stone on the path to our eventual... For people that don't understand the difference between or the problem that clean water solves, can you can you list down some of the diseases that are dealt with and, and, and how, how clean water overcomes so many problems and, and preempts many of them too? Well, there are 28 diseases we can track to water. You know, I mentioned some of these stats. In many of these countries, half the hospital beds are full because people didn't have clean water. They have some sort of waterborne disease. And, and maybe just one, I'm sure we've got some parents listening. One of the leading causes of death around the world is diarrhea. Now, I've got a seven and a nine-year-old. When my kids uh, get sick, you know, what, I, I go down to the Dwayne Reed or the Walgreens and I buy some sort of blue you know, Pedialyte or something, right? To hydrate your kids. Well, the way that you cure diarrhea is hydration. But if you're getting diarrhea from dirty, contaminated water, and that's all that you have, you, you die of dehydration. It's one of the most preventable things in the world. But you don't have the thing that is needed. You don't have the cure available. So let's just say number one, health. If you don't have water, you're not healthy. And number two, education. I remember when I started, one in three schools in the world don't have clean water and they also don't have toilets. So imagine sending your child, imagine sending your teenage daughter to a school with no water and no toilets. Well, I'll tell you what, she stays home four or five days every month. She's not going to a school with no water and sanitation. Well, that means she falls behind in her studies there's already enormous social pressure in so many of these countries uh, because the girls are useful doing other things. There's so many other things to do around the house, to go get the water, to go get the firewood, to, you know, to, to help garden, that they drop out of school. So water is one of the, the main things that is preventing girls specifically from being educated around the world. Women, it's always the women that are getting the water. Again, when I started Charity Water, I remember the stat was, 40 billion hours are wasted by women every single year walking for water just in Africa. And that's where about a third of the global problem is, just in Africa. If you take 40 billion hours, uh, it's more than the entire global workforce of the country of France. More than every single person in France working in a year, adding up to a massive GDP, wasted by women who are walking for water that's not even clean. It's not even useful. So, uh, and then I guess, you know, the, the last thing maybe to touch on, so there's health, there's education, there, there's the, the, the burden on women and girls. And then the last is, is kind of wealth. There's a lot of data that's come out that found if you can simply bring water and sanitation into a community, you make that community four to eight times richer, four to eight times more productive when you can take that lost time. And I'm not exaggerating here. A, a, a typical woman in Africa might walk six hours every day, seven days a week. So it's 42 wasted hours for water that's not even helpful to her family. Water that's, that's in, in many cases, poisonous, that is killing her children. And she knows it. 
when you can reclaim that time, we hear wonderful stories of entrepreneurship, uh, women that'll start businesses baking, baking donuts in their village, uh, making bricks, selling peanuts or rice at the market, earning extra income for school uniforms so they can put their kids through school. So, you know, there's health and there's education and there's empowering women and girls and there's, there's wealth and economic activity. Um, you know, if you just think about your own life, if you didn't have clean water, I mean, how radically different your life would be. But, you know, pretty much, I'm guessing 100% of the people that, that are listening right now did not wake up this morning and, and just consider themselves so blessed as they brushed their teeth or made their coffee, you know, or took a bottle of water to the gym. Um, it's just something that, you know, the 90% of the world, we were born into that part of the world where we take this thing for granted. It comes out of taps. It's it's readily we've, available. We've it's all experienced clean. a dose of diarrhea in our lives, <laughs> so we all know what it like what it's like to get that. And it's for most of us a, a one off situation, or not very often would we experience it. Imagine if you had to live with that day in day out. Imagine if that was your life every day, waking up with stomach cramps, not being able to consume stuff. You know, sitting on the toilet and feeling like that. That that that's such a simple way of trying to understand it. For me, I I really believe that that as you talk to me, that you have such purpose behind what you do that it's that it's without trying to big you up. When you say we print four trillion seven hundred and fifty millions, not a lot of money. It's almost like a state of mind that you have. Now, I'm sure at the very beginning, you know, the, the first million must have been mind blowing for you. But now it's just like, come on, you know, this, this is the biggest problem that we've got. We can solve this. More money will solve this problem. I, I forgot the name of the book that came out recently about the amount of uh, charity donations that go into Africa of only 15 percent of them actually hit that point because of the corruption involved in some of these countries. You making the promise that 100 percent was going to go to it because of the cynicism of our charity is actually a really important point. How have you been able to ensure that that's taken place? And have you faced resistance along the way and pushback from governmental organizations that are like, no, you're not doing it that way. Cross my palm with silver sunshine. Otherwise it's no. Yeah. We have a really different model, uh, even when it comes to implementing. So we work with 55 local partners none of our money passes through any government entity. So it is, it is finding the local NGO, the local non-governmental organization that has a uh, proficiency for implementing high quality sustainable water projects uh, and then a desire to grow their impact. Um, that's kind of the criteria we're looking for. Um, it, it, if you were to tell me today about a fantastic potential well drilling organization in Burundi uh, that you'd come across um, who you think could be a great implementing partner of Charity Water. It would take 18 months from the moment we started vetting that organization to when they got their first dollar from us. Um, there's such a rigorous process now, you know, as a, as a mature organization uh, of auditing both the programmatic quality, the sustainability, the, the finances of these organizations uh, really to make sure that the money is getting directly there. You, you know, 
I know this sounds kind of crazy, but there is an actual audit uh, right now and a partner who is going to be put on probation uh, because they found a $26 expense that was forged. Somebody went and said they got gas, but didn't get gas. So just to say, you know, just to show and, and you know, that, that will actually trigger kind of an audit and then an assessment of controls and such. But that's the level of expectation that we have is we want a receipt for $26 of gas, uh, even in the bush. Um, so there, there's, you know, there, the, we spend millions of dollars now uh, on that whole team that, that is looking after this portfolio across 20 some countries and 55 local partners. Again, that whole team is paid for by these 100 or so overhead donors. So that's the model today um, at, at scale. 131 high net worth families pay all the overhead. And it's the founders of, you know, companies like Shopify or Adyen or Pinterest or Twitter or, you know, executives at Google, people who understand that you need really talented people and you need to retain that talent. And then millions of donors in the other bank account are able to give a dollar or a million dollars and know that all of that money will reach the people directly. So it's a very unique model. It is difficult right? I mean, you have to kind of run these two different bank accounts um, or, or different interests, really, donor interests in perfect balance. And, you know, I'm proud to say that over 17 years, you know, we've never taken one penny. We've never borrowed one penny from that water account. Uh, every single penny has been sent out. And amazing, amazing work. And, you know, maybe maybe you, you don't realize how well you've done and maybe because there's so much more to do, you don't think about that. But it's really amazing work. Now, lots of other organizations that are trying to do the right thing and trying to raise capital to solve problems, try so lots of them with limited success to go about solving their problems. So I'll, I'll give you one example. So... There's a, there's a lady I know from Portugal called Maria who lives here in Dubai. When she was two years old, she was orphaned, brought up by another refugee from Angola. And she left school when she was young. Her mum her disappeared. She got a job as a cleaner and she said, if I'm going to be a cleaner, I'm going to be the Ronaldo of cleaners. And she became a cleaner and she, great lady. She then went to Switzerland, became a housekeeper to learn another language. And Switzerland's not part of the EU. She was hit by a car, went to hospital, wasn't allowed to be there because she was an EU resident. After hospital, she came out, went to London, got a job then as a housekeeper there. Saw a sign for Emirates Airlines cabin crew. She said, if I could get a job doing that, that's my dream. Anyway, luck would have it. She got the job. Her first flight was to Bangladesh, to Dakar. She spent two days in turnover there in the slums of Bangladesh. She saw these children suffering and the pain they were in. And she said, I have to help. She flew back to Dubai, sold her possessions, flew back to Bangladesh and helped one family. And then she Googled, how do I raise money for charity? The first thing that came up on Google was climb Mount Everest. This lady has never even set foot in a gym, okay. but she decided if that's what Google says, then that's what she must do. And she climbed Mount Everest. She's the first Portuguese woman to do it. She got a Guinness world record for that. She then raises some money. So she then goes and helps a family, but she wants to help more. She doesn't know how to do it because they don't speak English. So she decides the only way to do it is to build a school in Bangladesh so that she can teach these kids English. By teaching them English, she can then get them into the Middle East, into the UAE where we are, and get them into schools and then get them an education because that's critical. And these kids at 12 years old, they're all married off to 30-year-old men. You know many of these stories. You've experienced it yourself. I won't labor that point. 
So she goes back to Google. How do I raise more money for charity? Okay, North Pole, South Pole, two Ironmans back to back, K2, um, Mount Kinney, um, every mountain in the world she's climbed. She has 10 Guinness World Records. She's done uh, eight marathons in eight countries in eight days. She's done eight Ironmans in eight countries in eight weeks. You name it, she's done it to raise money. She's taken over 600 children now, brought them out of the slums of Bangladesh, put them into Dubai, got them scholarships, and some of them have even gone off to the United States for university. She has done a remarkable job, and she's a force of nature. She doesn't say boo to a goose, but she's a force of nature. However, I tell you this story, not because of that, but you are, for someone like her, the example the 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 flag bearer of the good things that you should do so for the benefit of her for the next five minutes what i'd like to do is ask you because i believe there's a there's a great maybe planned or learnt along the way marketing strategy that's deployed to be able to think of creative ways to come up with um ways of generating revenue into the business, generating revenue into the charity. Now, I'll give you one example that I've obviously consumed a lot of your content with the children giving up their birthdays. What a, what a beautiful idea, like such a beautiful idea because we all want our kids to understand there's more meaning to life than just getting a toy or a, whatever it may be on your birthday. Try and do something good for others. Try and be kind to others. And that really touched my heart because I would have loved my kids at 20 odd years old now. I would have loved my kids to be in that arena where they said, Dad, I'm giving up my birthday because I want to help Scott. You know, that for me would have been amazing. How do you come up with those ideas? And, and what advice could you give to people that are trying to be creative? Hmm. I just gave up my birthday. You know, I, I was thinking once uh, I'm turning 31. I don't need a watch. I don't need a wallet. I don't need a gift card from friends or family. I don't need to throw a party. What if I could turn my birthday into a giving moment, a generous moment that would bring the people that know and like me uh, together and others would benefit. Uh, others might be able to have more birthdays if they got access to clean water. And I just tried it. And I asked for my age in dollars. Most people I knew had, you know, about 32 bucks, 31, actually it's 32nd birthday. You know, most people had $32 and it wound up working. And then I met a seven-year-old kid and I said, hey, you're turning seven. What do you think about this idea? And then an 89-year-old and then a 64-year-old. And then that movement just started to grow. And we just kept asking for more and more birthdays. And then some people said, I love this idea, but my birthday's nine months from now. What can I do right now? And they did start climbing mountains and they did start walking across countries and they did start skydiving for charity water or facing their fears. And um, that birthday idea helped <laughs> raise over a hundred million dollars as over a million people went out and, and took that to their communities. So I, I think it all starts with storytelling very clearly articulating the problem you're trying to solve and letting people see what the solution is so you know for your friend I, i'm sure it's it's stories and it's videos and it's photographs here's what people are experiencing and here's the solution here is where we are trying to take them so that they can flourish i am showing dirty water 
it, it is shocking when you see a child drink from a brown swamp. And then I can show a drilling rig that will come in for about $10,000 and tap into the clean aquifer, you know, a couple hundred feet underneath that village. And then I can show that same child drinking clean water a week later because of the solution. And then I just invite people into it. And, you know, there are lots of different creative ways, but most of the creativity comes from everyday people. You know, yeah, I had the birthday idea, but I, I was with a guy uh, in, in, in uh, Fargo, uh, Dakota recently, and he did a campaign for Charity Water where he's terrified of heights. And he lived in Seattle and he said, you know, if I raise a few thousand dollars, I will conquer my fear and I will go up to the top of the Space Needle. Well, he raised a couple thousand dollars and then COVID happened. So he didn't have to do it. But the funny thing is they rebuilt the Space Needle's floor where it's all glass now. So he's got to go up and stand on a glass floor and look down at all of Seattle. I, I would have never thought of that. We had someone once uh, in San Francisco said, I, uh, on my 29th birthday, if I can raise $29,000, I'm going to swim in my birthday suit from Alcatraz to San yeah, Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> and now there's some sharks out there. So, you know, all her friends made sure because of her creativity, because of this, that she raised $29,000 and then she delivered and she did it. And she inspired a bunch of other people to be creative. What is in your hand? You know, how can you use, I think the, the question is, how can you use your time and your talent or creativity and your money in service of others? How do you end some of the needless suffering that you see either in your local community uh, with issues like ours in the global community? And then, you know, how do we move people from apathy to action, right? It's so easy just to say, oh, what could I ever do about the global water crisis? What could I ever do about you know, refugee, refugees in Dhaka and Bangladesh? But you start with one. I built one well, and now there are 120,000 water projects. She helped one person, mm. and now I'm sure she's helped that's out. Really, that's a really, really valid point. Now, I know that we have to be careful of time this evening because I know we've got other stuff that you guys need to do. Just before we finish, um, I'd, like, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about how you feel about government involvement and government support or the conversations you've had with governments over the years and how they've interacted with you. So uh, have you had a positive journey or, is it, or has it been somewhat of a challenge and have you had lots of pushback? It's been better uh, over the years. So I would, I would kind of say when I first started, we saw a lot of apathy, a lot of governments doing very little about water. Um, I was in Uganda uh, twice uh, last month, uh, and I remember flying into Entebbe, and there's this big poster that says, Uganda has reached 63% water access. Thank you for paying your taxes. Yeah, the Ugandan government is putting out a metric, which is, you know, it's not 100%, right? It's not 90%, it's 63%. And, and actually linking that to tax dollars. And they are spending money on water projects. Now, it's a fraction of what's needed. The GDP, you know, the available tax revenue in so many of these countries, is it, it, it's such an order of magnitude away. You know, the, the budget for the New York City school district is larger than the GDP of many of these entire countries. So you know, what's actually needed to solve these problems 
you know, when you have an agrarian society in some of these countries, 90% of the people are just subsistence farmers. You know, there's no tax revenue coming when you're, when you're taking your plot of land and that's what you're living off of. Um, but I, we've been really encouraged. You know, the, the Rwandan government now matches charity water donations uh, in investments in the country, 90 cents on the dollar. So if I put in 10 million, I get 9 million, about 4.5 million from the federal and 4.5 million from the district. And then now we have a $19 million water project budget uh, in that in that area. So we're seeing encouraging signs um, mm. rather than more, than more so in the right direction. Okay, a couple other things. When you think about the lessons you've learned along the years, what 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 are the biggest lessons that you've learned about yourself, about this in this world that we live in and 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 the people that you've worked with? What's been for you the highlights? I mean, I think, you know, for me, far more important than what we do or accomplish is how we do it. So I integrity, generosity. I mean, I think much more about values and the way that we work, the way that we act, the way that we treat others. You know, the core values of the organization are, are far more important to me than the amount of money that we raise. I mean, if we were raising money but cutting corners or compromising in any way, you know, I would I would sacrifice that upside to do things with the highest level of excellence, with the highest level of integrity. Um, I think sometimes that we just don't think big enough. You know, I had this really extraordinary moment where um, I'd asked somebody, and this is this is a kind of famous billionaire um, who I'd been in a relationship with and had traveled with to to Africa. And I wound up asking them for $10 million. This was a huge gift. I was so nervous. I mean, this is a lot of money to ask for. And this has only happened to me once, but it was really formative. And the person came back and said, you know, we did it in a beautiful proposal. It was really thoughtful. It took us four months to craft this bespoke proposal. Came back to me and said, why'd you ask for so little? And then they made a $40 million commitment. Why did you ask for so little? And I think so many philanthropists, you know, so many uh, charity workers out there, so many, so many people are thinking too small. You know, they're, they're coming with a poverty mentality. Oh, I wouldn't want to offend the donor. I'm only worth 10 million. I'm only worth a million. I'm only worth 100,000. I'm only worth 10,000, you know, depending on what point of the life cycle. And I think there's a boldness out there. I don't get to keep a single penny of that 40 million. In the case of this gift, 100% of that will go out across 21 countries and give 1 million people access to clean water. So there's no benefit for me. So why am I not advocating? So my limiting belief was asking for a quarter of a million people to get clean water. When somebody was willing to give a million people clean water. 750,000 people in the balance there. Now, you have to build proficiency. We know exactly what to do with $40 million. We will operate uh, you know, with the highest level of scrutiny and transparency and, and all the stuff that goes in there. We know exactly what to do. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, I would not known how to implement $40 million at scale across 21 countries with the level of uh, rigor and transparency. So you have to build the credible organization as well. But once you've done that, 
you know, I think you really got to see goals. Amazing. That's such such a great lesson for people. It's and that's a lesson in life, I think, as well. A lot of us don't think big in so many things. We play we play the small game when we don't really need to. And that, that's it, 40 million or 10 million. The reality is none of it's your money anyway. You, you know, you're just trying to get someone to do the right thing. Absolutely awesome. That's right. Scott, you're a you're a legend of a human being. You're one of the kindest people on the planet to have done what you've done. I don't know who gives you a pat on the back or how often that ever happens, but but for me, genuinely, it's an absolute honor to be sat with somebody that's worked as hard as you have in service of others in the way that you have. And my hat, sir, is taken off to you and your hard work. So thank you so much for coming to join us today. 